We're once again on a mountain with Jesus, and not three of his disciples, but eleven now. It's not the same mountain, it's not Mount Horeb, because this mountain is in Galilee, because that's where they were directed to go. The disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. (coughs) Eleven men with their own thoughts as they wait for Jesus on this mountain. What was the reason for this venue, the top of a mountain, another mountain? Well, I believe that the reason was that they would receive that impression of dimensions that we receive from a position of height, from an elevated situation, that their horizons would be widened and extended. And that's really, again, a description of the church, the church where we receive widened and extended horizons. We began this morning, I joyed when to the house of God, go up, they said to me. It's interesting that Psalm 122 follows 121, I to the hills will lift mine eyes. And then Psalm 122, I will go, I will go up to the house of God. Because in the house of God, as we come around God's word, we receive a true view and a breath of the pure atmosphere of the assembly of the people of God. I remember the late Professor James McIntosh would describe it this way. He said, I received a fresh breath of grace. I thought that was a beautiful expression. A fresh breath of grace. May we do so this evening. So these 11 men, they went to Galilee as Jesus in obedience to Jesus and to the mountain to where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. There were 11 there, and of that 11, we're not told who they were or how many they were, but some doubted. I don't know how many are here, but even if there was one of the 11 and the proportion then there will be some here who will doubt as well. Notice, it doesn't say that some didn't believe. There's a difference between unbelief and doubt. Some doubt it. And what subdues doubt? Well, what subdues doubt is confirmation. Confirmation of the word. And I, I suggested... That prayer from Psalm 119, verse 38, would be the great prayer with which to approach the house of God every time we come. Confirm to me thy gracious word, which I did gladly hear, even to thy servant, Lord, who is devoted to thy fear. In the prose version of the psalm, it says, confirm to your servant your promise. Your promise that I embrace, that I gladly hear, 
your promise that means so much to me, then I want it, I need it to be confirmed over and over again. That's what we like. We need confirmation. Confirm, confirm. Confirm your promise. And I believe the mountain of commission is a mountain of confirmation. And that's what we see, I trust, here this evening. Now, the mountain was in Galilee, and it's reckoned that it was Mount Arabel. And from that mountain, it's just a pity that we didn't have the picture, but there's a picture that I have from that mountain, and it looks over. There it is. Wonderful. There we are. And that area in front there, you can see the Sea of Galilee just in the corner. And then there's that flat plain, which is the plain of Gennesaret. And that's a, a fertile plain. And that's the view that these 11 men had. And that's the view that Jesus wanted them to have as he pronounced this, what we call the Great Commission, as he commissioned them. And, you know, I think as they looked out over that plain and beyond, and especially that plain, that's a fertile plain, and that what would come to their mind was the words of Jesus when he said, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest. And so it is with ourselves, isn't it? There is this great harvest field, which we should see as fertile ground. I know it's difficult to see this darkness that, that surrounds us as fertile ground. But that's what it is, and I believe that's how Jesus sees it. So these men then are on this mountain, and it is the mountain of commission. But the first word that they receive is what we call the great claim. The great claim. The great claim of Jesus. And Jesus came and said to them, and this is the confirmation that they need, the confirmation of this great claim of authority. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now this great claim could not be made by any other than the Son of God, the Lord of glory. All authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth. Now authority is the right to exercise power. You know, we have... Uh, maybe you have the same, but uh, Alan Fraser sends out every week weekly uh, prayer requests, prayer notes. And at the bottom, the underlining of these prayer notes, these words, Jesus is risen, and to him has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And that underlines every prayer, does it not? the authority of Jesus. Jesus claims the highest honor in the universe for himself. Let me ask you now, how do you feel about that? Spurgeon said this, 
I am sure there is no more delightful doctrine to a Christian than that of Christ's absolute sovereignty. Let me ask you, is that the most delightful doctrine to you? Because it is the doctrine of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And there is no greater name and no greater claim. Abram Kuyper, who was Prime Minister of the Netherlands, 1901 1901-1905, oh, that we had Prime Ministers like him. He famously said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And do we say, yes, Lord, all is yours and not mine. Who would replace him? Hebrews 1, verse 3, we read from Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is enthroned. Revelation 1. No, sorry, not Revelation 1. Revelation 5. And uh, verses 1 to 6. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. In fact, that could be translated howl with despair because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. No one could take forward the plan of God for the redemption of his creation. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. I love these three words, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. That's beautiful, isn't it? That he was told, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what he sees is the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The lion and the lamb. C.S. Lewis, in the book, 
the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. He writes this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First word, the great claim. The second word, the great commission. And a commission is the giving of authority to perform a certain task or duty. In the forces, we have commissioned officers. Now, an officer can write a letter to resign his commission, but he can expect a letter in return from the general that will say, I resign your commission, and resign spelt R E hyphen S I G N, because it is signed by authority. It is a commission that gives an officer authority, and it is a commission that comes from a higher authority. And so it is with this commission. And Jesus says, go, therefore, go because of my authority, go into Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, it's interesting that go is not a command. It's what, I'm not a grammarian, but apparently it's a present participle, which uh, would imply keep on going. You've begun to go, so keep on going. They've been going for three years, but they had been going with limitations. But now they are to go with no boundaries. On that mountain view, they will see a far horizon, and their horizons will be beyond these horizons. And while you're going, here's your command, here's your commission. I am giving you authority to make disciples. Disciples are learners. I'm giving you authority to make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. They learned from him for three years, and now they're to teach about him. And what are they to teach? They are to teach that Jesus is Lord. That he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
that all authority has been given to him, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having by himself purged our sins. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now that word purged, as we have it in other translations, the word means to be washed away, to purge. The Greek word is catharsis, from which we get the English word catharsis, which is a relief of strong feeling or tension. And that's what sin produces, strong feelings of tension and tension. And the purging produces relief and remission and reconciliation. But you see, it must be about him. My feelings can be replicated by almost every religion on earth. A Muslim can say, I can feel this, I can feel that. A Buddhist can say, I can feel this, or I can feel that. Eastern religions can say, yes, we can feel all these things. We can feel peace. We can experience all these things. But it's what has been done for me. That's the message. Jesus is Lord, and this is what he has done. By himself, he has purged our sins, and he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's what has been done for me. The apostle puts it, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And who are they to teach all the nations? No boundaries. Make disciples, make learners. Baptizing them. And you know, baptizing is a naming ceremony. And it's a public naming ceremony. It's a declaration of identity. And this surely is the answer to the identity crisis and confusion that we see in the world and especially in our world and in our culture today. Baptizing them so that they publicly declare that they are washed and purged and now they bear the name of God, children of God. John 1 verse 12, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who receive him and believe in his name. Alistair Begg says there's no such person as a secret disciple. Either your discipleship will destroy your secrecy or your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. Baptizing them in the name of the tripersonal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle writes, Let us rejoice that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who cooperated to make man, do also cooperate to save. Sinclair Ferguson, in a little book, A Heart for God, maybe it's even in the library there, it's a great little book. Many years ago since he wrote it, A Heart for God, and he writes this, The God whose being we cannot comprehend is also the God who is a Father who loves us, a Son who came to die for us, a Spirit who brings us 
into God's heart and who brings God into our hearts. I think that's worthy of repeating. The God whose being we cannot comprehend is also the God who is a Father who loves us, a Son who came to die for us, a Spirit who brings us into God's heart and who brings God into our hearts. So the Commission, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey or to observe. And this is a difficult bit, isn't it? Because they will resist. They will resist. But baptized children must learn to obey and be willing to obey. And Jesus is the ultimate example of obedience, isn't he? Hebrews 5 verse 9. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. For all who obey him. Ryle again says, Obedience is the only proof of the reality of trust. Sinclair Ferguson again there is no such thing as genuine knowledge of God that does not show itself in obedience to his word and will. The person who wants to know God but has no heart to obey him will never enter the sacred courts where God reveals himself to the soul of man. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Obey, why? Because he is Lord. Because he is Lord. He is worthy of our obedience. And our obedience is the proof of our trust in him. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this in his little book, Mere Christianity, on the Lordship of Jesus. I'm trying here, he said, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And that foolish thing is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He is Lord. You see, it's easy to have agreement on acceptance of Jesus as a great moral teacher. But the Lord, who has all authority and is to be obeyed, is another matter altogether. But that's what the Great Commission is to teach. Teach them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. How do you feel about that? Well, if you feel like me, you'll say, it's impossible. It's impossible because they'll resist. And I'm just so uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable. So what do I need? I need the third word here, the great comfort. There's a great claim, the great commission, and there's a great comfort. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Another translation has it, and surely I am with you always. Now what would come to their minds was what Jesus had said to them, without me you can do nothing. And how true that is, and how comfortingly true it is. He was going away, and he had said to them, it is good for you that I go away. Because of where he was going, that he had to ascend to the place of power, which was rightly his. And from there, the Father would send the promised Holy Spirit. That was his reward. Revelation 5, the Lamb had seven horns, complete power, seven eyes, complete vision, which are the sevenfold Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. You see, it's not those who are given the commission that will produce the required conviction of the world, but it is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And the gospel message is that he is Lord, and that he, that his gospel is the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And we've got to remember that too, to the Jew first. That order has never changed. And then to the Gentile. But we have to remember the Gentiles as well. Romans 1, verse 16. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile, and surely I am with you always. I am with you always. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Spurgeon famously puts it, puts that verse, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, always himself. You know, that's a great thing that you say about somebody. It's all, always himself or herself. You never see change in them. You can always depend on how you find them. And so it is with Jesus Christ. The great comfort, 
the love and the patience of Jesus Christ. Eleven disciples. Some doubted. They needed the confirmation of his word and of his power. And then there was one added to make up 12 in Acts chapter 1, but there was 500 others, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. And most names we never hear of, but they all received that great commission. Most names we never hear of. But we hear of Peter and some of the others. But you know, one thing we hear about Peter when the Great Commission was to go into all the world and preach the gospel, it took Peter about eight years to, to overcome his prejudice and include the Gentiles. And it needed a confrontation with Paul. But it needed more than that. It needed confirmation from heaven that Peter would not call unclean what God would call clean. And he was no respecter of persons. It took him about eight years to overcome that prejudice. It may take us years too to overcome because we all have our prejudices. But the commission is this to go into all the world, everywhere, every person, every human being. But you know there's no other fault exposed of the eleven or the one who was added or the five hundred. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Wearsby, uh, in his commentary, he uh, refers to uh, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, who was Minister of Westminster Chapel before uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. There was an elderly lady that he would visit regular and read with her and pray with her. And he read on one occasion the, uh, the Great Commission and these words, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he said to the lady, Isn't that a wonderful promise? In his wisdom... He said, isn't that a wonderful promise? Wiser was the response. Young man, what a way to speak to a minister. Young man, that is not a promise. It is a fact. And with that fact, we close. May God bless his word to us. We're going to sing now Psalm